Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in Fantasy and Adventure, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical fantasy Falcon series and Girl of Fire, the first in a YA fantasy series. My January interview is with Ilona and Gordon Andrews, a couple who write under the name Ilona Andrews. We'll be discussing Emerald Blaze, which is the fifth in the Hidden Legacy series. I read it as a standalone, and it wasn't difficult to follow. Here's the plot. Catalina Baylor is the titular prime of House Baylor, where she and her crew, including her dangerous cousin Leon, engage in detective work. She's also secretly the deputy to Texas Warden, charged with keeping the potent serum that creates magical powers out of the hands of evildoers. She's just picked up the pieces of her broken heart and set her mind to keeping her extended family safe when a new challenge disrupts her life. Four of Houston's most powerful houses have a business deal with a nasty old codger by the name of Lander Morton. The focus of this deal is the swampy pit, which is full of magical hazmat. Once it's cleaned up, there's a fortune to be made in real estate development. When Lander's Morton's son is tortured and killed on sight of the pit, Morton is convinced one of the other houses is behind it. In addition to hiring Catalina to conduct an investigation, he also hires a suave Italian assassin to kill whoever Catalina identifies as the perpetrator. The problem? The assassin is Alessandro, Catalina's ex, who walked out on her and left her bereft. Now Alessandro claims he took the job with Morton in order to protect her. But can she believe him? It's an entertaining and fun read with romantic sizzle. You can read about Ilona's initial journey to publication and find out all about the many series that she and Gordon write under her website, https Ilona Andrews with a slash between Ilona and Andrews.com. Ilona is native born Russian, and Gordon is a former communications sergeant in the U.S. Army. Contrary to popular belief, Gordon was never an intelligence officer with a license to kill, and Ilona was never the mysterious Russian spy who seduced him. They actually met in college, in English Composition 101, where Ilona got a better grade. Gordon is still sore about that. And now for a short reading. The Prologue The Wolf Was Coming Lander Morton knew this because he'd invited the wolf into his home. His body man, Sheldon, had come to tell him the wolf was at the door and had gone to fetch him. Now the two of them were coming back, but Lander only heard one set of footsteps echo throughout the house. He shifted in his wheelchair and took a long swallow of his bourbon. Fire rolled down his throat. His old guts would make him pay for it later, but he didn't care. Some men were men and others were wolves in human skin. He needed a human wolf for this job, and he would get one. For the first time in the last three days, he felt something other than crushing grief. 
This new emotion cut through the thick fog of despair, and he recognized it as anticipation. No, it was more than that. It was a heady mix of expectation, apprehension, and excitement tinged with fear. He used to feel like this years ago, when he was on the verge of closing a huge deal. It happened decades since he'd experienced a splash of adrenaline, and for a moment he felt young again. Sheldon appeared in the doorway of the study and stood aside, letting the other man enter. The guest took three steps inside and stopped, letting himself be seen. He was young, so young, and he moved with an easy grace that made Lander feel ancient. Strong, tall, handsome in that Mediterranean way, shaped by sun and salt water. When Felix's boy grew up, he might look like that. Pain lashed him, and Lander struggled with it. His guest waited. Lander looked at his face. There it was, in the eyes, the wolf looking back at him, cold, hungry. And you'll learn all about the wolf soon. His name is Alessandro. As my guests today, I have a husband and wife writing team, Ilona and Gordon, who wrote Emerald Blaze which is book five of the Legacy series, the book I've been talking about. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thank you for having us. (laughs) Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, and thanks for taking time out of your schedule. So Um, I'm going to jump right in and talk about Catalina. She's the heroine of this book, and people are really taken by her. Uh, She's a strong heroine, but she's also very vulnerable, uh, we're introduced to her crew in the first chapter, and she and her crew are obviously people with moral principles. When we first meet them, she's taken on a pro bono case to retrieve a helper animal, a golden tamarind monkey, and reunite it with its owner, a young girl in a wheelchair. So she's a pretty nice person. We know she's angry at Alessandra for leaving her without explanation. But doesn't it trouble her that he's an assassin? Well, yes, of course it does. Um, Part of the reason why um, she explores all of this in Emerald Blaze is specifically because he is an assassin. She ran a background on him. She was trying to find answers. Why did he become the assassin? Uh, what, What kind of assassination jokes did he take? Um, and she actually found um, more questions rather than answers. Um, this becomes somewhat more clear in the narrative as the book progresses as to what kind of assassination does Alessandro really do. Well, and also I have to jump into Alessandro's defense and say he only kills other assassins. So I feel like that's a, that's sort of a mitigating factor. You know, it's kind of like the true lies thing where he's like, she's like, you killed a bunch of people. And he's like, yeah, but they're all bad people. <laughs> so... So it's good that he's meeting Catalina so he gets a chance to make his case. He's actually not a bad guy, is he? No, he's not a bad guy. Well, Catalina has a boss. That's Texas Warden Linus. He gives Catalina a special present, a plain short sword. And she's touched that he made a sword for her because she knows his specialty is projectile weapons. Now, why would he make a sword for Catalina? Tell us a bit about her weapons preference. Catalina's magic um, is, is related to her family bloodline. 
in her, most of the people in her family are actually uh, Sagittarius mages, which means that they um, are very precise when they're firing projectile weapons. For Catalina, the talent manifested more in uh, bladed weapons. She's very precise with her fire. Um, she can strike at the exact weakness um, that her opponent has. And so when Linus makes her a sword, um, the sword is special. It has some magical properties. Um, in, in that world, the magic is treated more like science rather than magic. So the sword is actually a marvel of magical engineering. Um, and it will give Catalina an edge when she most needs it. Yeah, I mean, the short answer for me is that he knows she's much better with the bladed weapons than she is with projectile weapons. If, for instance, he was making a, a weapon for Leon, obviously it would be some type of firearm. And I think that, to me, that's a touching thing, that he knows her abilities, her capabilities, and makes something that's much more suited to her than simply like a magic gun. And it's definitely, it may appear to be a plain short sword, but <laughs> it is much more than it appears to be. Yeah. So Catalina has, uh, we learn a lot more about her family as the book unfolds. And she has two grandmothers. They're very different in character. So tell us about each uh, and how they enrich or obstruct her life. Uh, you know, I think it's like, Grandma Frida is the grandma that you wish you had. And <laughs> Victoria Tremaine is, is unfortunately the bad grandma that you might have. Mm -hmm. I, I, that's the difference, kind of. If you boil it down, you know, Grandma Frida is like a lot of people in that world. They have magic, but they're not necessarily combatants. She's your normal person. Victoria Tremaine is, is like magic nobility. She's incredibly powerful. She's from a powerful family. And it's almost those two worlds that the kids that are the grandchildren, both of them live in sort of being between those yeah. two extremes of, of basically Grandma Frida almost being like a blue-collar, mechanic-y person. She does have magic. And then Victoria being a very, very powerful mental mage. You know, she's rich, or she was. She's probably still rich. Yeah, she's rich. And, you know, she has, she puts a lot of stock into her idea of family, which is also a little bit different than Grandma Frida's idea of family. I think it's just those two extremes. Yeah, Grandma Frida, you know, she kind of got to have a, a happy life. She married for love. Um, she had a fulfilling career in the Army as a mechanic. Um, she had children, uh, although, you know, one Giselle is, is not is, is a super awesome daughter, but um, Penelope turned out to be okay. Uh, Penelope is Catalina's mother. You know, she has grandchildren, she has warmth and light, and, and, and basically what we typically aim for as humans, you know, companionship, happy family, um, where, you know, the, um, uh, Victoria Tremaine was denied all those things. Yes, she's rich and she is extremely powerful, but she is also um, very lonely. She was alone most of her life. Her only son, which she had gone through horrible lengths to to, to um, give birth to, um, basically ran away from her. Yeah, he, he essentially rejected everything that she stood for, thought was important. Exactly. And split, like, yeah, he took off. And so for her to suddenly find this new family, I think that she is quite desperate to keep them all safe. 
uh, in her eyes, they're basically babies who are floundering about uh, in the shark-infested waters that are, you know, that is that magical world. And she is just trying to keep them safe by any means necessary. And sometimes those means are extremely cruel. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of how I think that both grandmothers have sort of the same goal in mind. They want their grandchildren to be, you know, healthy, happy, successful. It's just they're going about it in a no, extremely I, very different I don't, way. I don't think Victoria cares so much that they're happy. I think Victoria cares that they're happy. But <laughs> the happiness is very low. <laughs> the survival is very high. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun having both of you on the show. So uh, do Alessandro and Catalina work well together as a team? I mean, she's disappointed in him. He's jealous. How is their teamwork progressing as the book goes on? Well, I think their teamwork progressing great. I mean, they click right away. And, you know, her disappointment with him, I I don't know that I would use that way to characterize their relationship. She wasn't disappointed. She was hurt. You know, that's a little bit different. Where... His jealousy doesn't really play into picture at all in the sense that he, uh, when the book starts, he knows that he's screwed up royally. And he doesn't think that there is a chance that they would be together. He's solely there to protect Catalina because she's literally the most important person in his life. Um, He knows that she's in danger. He knows that she cannot handle that danger by herself. Because the adversary is very, very powerful. And so he's there to make sure that she survives this, this trial, kind of. Um, he, it's not, like, like he says in the book, it's not, keeping her safe is not everything he wants, but he will settle for that. Yeah, I mean, I think as far as their teamwork, that's why it hurts so much at the end of the previous book, is that in her mind, they did work really well together. They clicked, and then he just, he split, he, he left. You know, and what she thought what they had was pretty good. And, you know, she wondered, well, maybe he didn't think so, you know. So I do think once they get over their stuff, they do work well together. So now she's having a chance to get Alessandro to open up to her. Uh, Things have shifted in his life, and he's sharing more information about his emotional state. In fact, she asks him what his greatest hope in life is, and he tells her, what is it? I think that Alessandro, at that point in life, Alessandro's basically greatest hope is surprisingly that Catalina would be happy. He wants for her to be happy. It's kind of a very unselfish thing of him because, yeah, whether she's happy with him or not, yeah, he just he wants her to have a happy, uh, fulfilling life, kind of. Uh, you know, he wants her to get to do all the things that she wants to do. Alessandro is kind of a very damaged guy. Um, his family treated him very badly in a sense that they only wanted to use him for their purposes. Nobody had actually asked Alessandro, what do you want? What do you want out of life? What would make you happy? And so when he first time met Catalina all those years ago and she told him, she said, I want you to have a happy life. I want you to get to do all the things you want to do. It was almost like a lightning bolt because nobody up to that point had ever basically inquired or showed any interest in figuring out what it is that made him tick. 
So um, now he kind of just wants the same for her. That's it. His his hope is very small, but you know it's a it's a very heartfelt hope. Yeah. I'm I'm kind of struck that Alessandro and Victoria Tremaine have one thing in common, <laughs> probably not much. They both, the security and happiness of their family is very important to them. And Alessandro does say that too. He's still, uh, he's obviously devoted to Catalina, but uh, he's devoted to his remaining family at home too and wants them safe. Yeah, mainly his mom and his sister. That's the thing. That's kind of why he does all the things he does is to kind of keep them safe. Yeah. Uh, make sure that they have enough money. It's a difficult situation with, with his grandfather. His grandfather is very domineering. His grandmother and um, his mother are kind of weak, and they're weak by design. That family um, basically, I don't want to spoiler the book, but mm-hmm. the family basically has a problem that they've been solving by successive marriages. And so, um, you know, when when that's your aim, you want kind of a docile partner um, so the partner can be used. And that's what it is. So they're not necessarily able to, um, you know, stand up for themselves in the same way that Alessandra can. Alessandra's sisters, however, are, are, are just like him. Okay. So uh, when Catalina and Alessandra are working together, to solve this mystery, they encounter something new and unexpected in their investigation. It's an animated construct that appears to be innately intelligent. What is the significance of that, and what would make such a thing especially dangerous? Well, in that world, um, the magical constructs are usually produced by animator mages, um, people who are able to um, kind of take ordinary objects and bind them together into kind of creatures or automatons via magical means. And this uh, particular construct was made by application of some uh, forbidden, basically, magic. It is self-replicating, meaning that it is self-aware, and it is also able to repair itself. So, um, you know, if you hack a piece of it off, it will just, growing your piece. So it's basically kind of unkillable unless you can get all of it together in one spot. And uh, as the book progresses, it becomes evident that this construct has spread through um, the area where, where it was released. And it really views um, humans as a kind of um, resource, you know, that it uses for, for further expansion. Well, yeah, and that's why when we talked about this at some point, I was like, you know, this really isn't like our normal murder mystery. This is a creature feature. And I was like, yeah, it kind of is. made the creature that, you know, that thing that was made using forbidden. Obviously, there's allusions to Shelley and, and Frankenstein, but, like, it was a creature that he didn't ask to be born. It was created mm-hmm. using, you know, very technology. And it's really, in a sense, I, I feel sympathetic because it just wants to survive. This wants to survive, but it also basically quickly figured out it's kind of superior to humans. And so, yeah, 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 it is. It can just absorb human pieces into it, which makes it sound kind of grisly. It's almost like a modern art construction. 
Yeah. Well, you know, we like to push the boundaries a little bit. Um, typically, romance genre and horror genre do not cross over that much unless it's in the form of like a gothic, mm-hmm. you know. But I think that the modern audiences are conditioned to um, expect better monsters. We have such wonderful, basically, films and books, and the genre has extended so much that we felt comfortable including kind of a grisly odd creature into well, our Well, yeah, world. I mean, if he didn't do that, he kind of wouldn't be the villain. In the yeah. There would be in the pit minding his own business. Hi, I'm here. I'm doing my thing. <laughs> It'd be awful if they just went in and killed it. That would be terrible. Um, yes, you know, we, we tried to... The hidden legacy as a, as a series is over the top. You know, it's over, everybody is very handsome or very beautiful mm-hmm. and dangerous. And their magic is, is really vivid. And, you know, tempers fly and all this. So, of course, it required a really scary, macabre villain, kind of, to, to offset the heroes. Mm-hmm. To keep up with the impossibly handsome heroes and angel-winged heroine. Well, it's, it's Dynasty. It's Falcon Crest. It's, it's <laughs> you know, all the beautiful people that are inexplicably rich. And... Yes, or, or, you know, trying to get there. And they're getting murdered left and right, you know. And at some point, it kind of turned into, what is it, Midsummer Nights, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so. so oh, uh, that, that tiny village where they're Yeah, the murder. tiny British village was murder every day. And like, it's got to be the per capita murder, murder capital of the world. Yes, how they did not give up. Sorry, we, lot of, we watch a lot of British television shows. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like you guys have a lot of fun trading ideas back and forth. You know, my husband and I tried writing together when we met. He has a background in journalism. Every time I'd create some original metaphor, take a flight of imagination, he'd say, well, how does this work exactly? So now I write alone. And I'm just curious, how did the two of you manage to work together so well? What's your process for writing a book? Um, you know, we started writing together. It kind of, I want to say it grew kind of organically. Uh, we met in college, and we started dating. We were in the same class, and we started working on each other's papers. Like, for instance, uh, I may have been slightly better at history and English, where Alona was better in some of the sciences. And we would start by proofreading each other's papers and uh, adding some suggestions and, like, I don't want to say for purposes of not getting my degree revoked that we <laughs> then we wrote each other, but we we collaborated. Yeah, we collaborated, and you know, it's the, so it started many years ago. Now, almost God, twenty yeah, twenty years ago. We've been married for a while, and so but tend to think in similar ways. Um, mm-hmm. I think that our collaboration works because we. Try to compensate for each other's weaknesses. Uh, we do have stats over it occasionally, you know, over, over word usage or, you know, one of us sometimes will throw their hands and like, I said, I'm done, I'm done for the day, I'm going, you know. But I can't work with you when you're like this. Yes, I can't work with you. I'm when you're going like this. to the house dramatically because yes. our office is like 50 feet from the house. Oh. Yes, so. <laughs> but it doesn't allow us to stock out. It's so far to go. I'm going home. I'm going home. You know, so, but. Uh, overall, if it if it made it into the book, it was a compromise. Yeah. Um, or we both just agreed to it. Like, yeah, oh, that's good. That's good. Um, 
the, you know, the, the, the toughest moments for us are when it's not going well. When it's not going well, and we know we made the wrong turn somewhere, but we don't know what the wrong turn is. Yeah, but we both know we're in the wrong place. And, of course, I won't ask for directions. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it, it's just, you know, it's the frustration where you know it's wrong and you don't know how to fix it. You're not sure where it all went, basically, sideways. So those are the toughest moments, I would say. And those are the moments where we stare at each other. We're like, man, you know. No, yeah, I mean, but that's the thing. We go down to the office. We when we're when we're working on something, we try to have a schedule. We wake up. We have coffee or tea. We say hi to our kids, if if they're both here. Usually it's just one. Um, and we walk down to our office, and we have one computer, and we sit down. And I'm usually behind the keyboard, and we just work until lunch. And then we have lunch and we go back. Sometimes we we uh, we don't go back. We just we eat and we fall asleep watching terrible murder shows, <laughs> and we call it a day. But we we have a goal. We do try to get two thousand words a day. That's usually our yeah. our working daily goal is to get that two thousand words. It's in, either that or in a scene. scene. A scene. Yeah. Sometimes it's just a scene, regardless of the of the length. Um, we just try to yeah. get this. If we if if we feel like we nailed that scene and we're both happy with it, then sometimes we can just call it a day. Yeah, it's, you know, a lot of times people are like, well, word count, word count. It's not really the words you write, it's the words you keep. So if you wrote a good chunk and you know you're going to keep that and it's good, you know, then, hey, daily goal accomplished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's good to give yourself some space I think for new ideas to bubble up, um, probably just sitting at a desk without a pause isn't good. Well, I think you just answered the last question about uh, you started writing in 2007, you're on a bestseller list, and how do you keep the novels coming out? You just shared your daily schedule with us, so you've got a space where you go to do your work and kind of agreed on ritual. So uh, what are you guys working on now? Uh, we're going to basically start work on the final book in Catalina's trilogy, which will be named uh, uh, Ruby Fever. Mm-hmm. Is it? Yeah. yeah. If you say so. Um, and it, it basically will nicely conclude Catalina's story arc, and we'll find out what happened with her and Alessandro. Uh, I did have one question. Why did you call this book five Emerald Blaze? Well, it's actually kind of a funny story. Um, we were in New York uh, brainstorming the title for Catalina Trilogy. Um, and uh, it was actually the two of us, um, our editor, Erica Tseng, with Avon Books, and our publicist, Pam Chaffee. And... Um, our agent was there too, Nancy. Yo. So we were, all, we were, we somehow ended up in this bar in New York, and we were basically sipping fruity drinks and having and, smart cocktails. Yes, having <laughs> smart cocktails as one does when in New York. And uh, we were trying to figure out some kind of theme because, um, you know, since it's a trilogy, uh, all the titles need to have a theme. And so it was decided because the first uh, Nevada trilogy had a theme of burning. You know, mm-hmm. it had titles. Like burn for me and you know wildfire it was decided to kind of keep the element of fire but they did, they wanted to add a jewel to it well once you add a jewel to it there's a limited number of jewel names you could use mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> so the first Catalina book was named Sapphire Flames, which was like yay, fairly, fairly quickly. And for the second well, one, actually Diamond Fire. Yeah, Diamond Fire was a novella. Sure. Then was Sapphire Flames, and now you know for the Emerald Blaze, we we knew we had to we we had to use either Emerald or Ruby, and since we have a swamp in this um, mm-hmm. green book. Yeah. Uh, we went with the green jewel. Yeah, if you read the book, I, I feel like because of the swamp and the pit and everything, there's a definite green, and we thought that it's a weird consideration, but the green would look really good on the cover, too. Yes, like emerald and blaze and green fire, and it would look really good. Yeah, since it's so jewel-toned, it would look really pretty. We do reference the title in our books. Um, if, you, if you read, you'll always find kind of an allusion to the title and narrative. So, but yeah, that's why. And so this is why we ended up with Ruby Fever because it was Ruby, you know, and everybody was expecting Ruby Inferno. But, you know, <laughs> that would have been good too. First, it was silly. So we went with Ruby Fever, yeah. Ruby Inferno. I mean, there is a limited amount of cheese we can do, right? Yeah. No, we're pretty cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, guys, thanks so much for uh, being on the show. And we'll look forward to your next book hitting the bestseller list soon. Oh, I hope so. (laughs) Thank you so much for having us. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network in Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I've been talking to Gordon and Ilona Andrews about the fifth novel in their Hidden Legacy series, Emerald Blaze. February's interview will be with self-professed geek Mike Chen, the author of the quirky superhero novel, We Could Be Heroes, which is being released in January. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the YA fantasy Girl of Fire, the first in the Brano's Quest series. You'll find the podcast schedule on my website, gabriellematthew.com. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more at Gabrielle Author. My name is spelled G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. Till next time.